As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, a show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my good friend, Jesse Israel. Jesse is the founder of Big Quiet, a global meditation gathering and experience company. He was the founder of Cantora Records, which put out some of the first albums by artists such as MGMT and Francis and the Lights. He's a meditation teacher. He's a social entrepreneur. He is one of my favorite friends to hang out with, and I'm appreciating all of you listening and him joining us. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. What's up, Jeff? So good to be here, brother. Where is here? Well, physically right now, I'm in my parents' home in Los Angeles in lockdown during, I guess, week three of the COVID-19 quarantine. You and me are contemporaries. We came up at the same time. You know, uh, you know, you were in New York um, around the time that we started Summit. You had founded Cantora Records, man, and you had put out albums with Francis and the Lights and MGMT, and and had a whole career before you were big quieting. That's right. Yeah, ten years doing that from the time I was twenty till I was thirty. And were you always yeah. in music since like you were like in your early twenties? Yeah. Well, I was a film student at NYU, but my sophomore roommate and I started a dorm room record label when we were each 20 to put out MGMT's first album. And that's really what pushed me into music. It wasn't my plan to go into music. My plan was to go into film. And when did you start practicing mindfulness? What was what were some of the original breadcrumbs for you? Well, I had been running this label for a couple of years as a college student, and it pretty much had turned into a full-time job while I was also a full-time student. And by the time I graduated NYU and I was in my early 20s, my first year, probably first, second year into being a quote unquote adult, you know, out of school, being a, a young professional, I was already burnt out. And I remember being 23 and having panic attacks and just experiencing debilitating anxiety. 
and not understanding why it was happening because I had, I was building this, this cool sort of sexy music biz. It was doing well. Our first band MGMT was taken off and all of the boxes were checked in regards to, you know, being happy and driving success and feeling good in life. But the reality was I was feeling really, really unwell. Um, I'd get home from, from our studio office and I would just feel really stressed in my body, unhealthy. I had trouble sleeping and just a lot of disconnect from myself. I had trouble connecting with other people like sexually and romantically. I was super blocked. So it, it was clear that it wasn't going to be sustainable for me. And my body was, was saying, Jess, you're in the red zone. And that's when the panic attack started. So it was around that time when I was 23, 24, having these challenging moments that I started looking for tools to help me work through this stuff. And I, it wasn't something that I really felt like I could talk about with other people at that time in my life, at least. It wasn't a conversation in the music biz. It wasn't something that I felt like as men we talked about. So I Googled ways to deal with my stress and learned about mindfulness meditation. Actually, initially, I, I learned about Buddhist meditation. And I went to a 30-minute intro class uh, in Midtown, New York, and started practicing for a couple minutes a day, every day. But it's just a couple minutes. I started with three minutes a day and found it to be an incredibly, incredibly helpful. A lot of things started to shift. What originally started to shift? Well, what I noticed was that by taking a few minutes a day, and my thing was every morning when I would leave the bathroom, right? I use the bathroom every morning. I think a lot of people do. One of the first things I do in the morning is use the bathroom. So my thing was the second I leave the bathroom in the morning, I sit on my couch, I meditate for three minutes. And I did this for a month. And just sitting down on my couch for three minutes for a month, just built this new habit into my life, which was when I leave the bathroom in the morning, I sit on my couch and I close my eyes. So in a, in a relatively short period of time, I was starting to do 10 minutes a day. And, um, and even when I was doing this, this small amount of daily meditation, I was noticing these changes in my life. The first one was that when I would walk into my office, right, I was, I was, like I mentioned, I was running a record label. I was a young guy. When I would walk into my office before I was meditating, before I had just the 10 minute daily practice, I would walk into the office and I would just feel this overwhelm before I'd even open the door. There's like a, almost like a sense of dread going into work, which is a shitty feeling to feel when you're running your own business. Um, when you're, I think, working for anything and you're feeling that way is a shitty feeling. And it's when you're young, you're at this age, it's this thing that's so attached to sort of your, your self-image. And if that thing's not making you feel more confident or better and like the victories that you thought were the ones that you wanted to achieve aren't actually fulfilling that, you're like, oh shit, I'm on the wrong track. Dude, that was such a huge part of it. You know, it was, and it was confusing. It was like, I'm, I'm a young guy and I'm already feeling this way going into my office. And I think a lot of what was triggering the panic I was experiencing, and, and I'm going to answer the question that we were just on track about in regards to the changes I noticed with meditation. But what was, what was particularly challenging and creating a sense of panic for me was I identified so much with this career and with being this person that had accomplished this thing with this band, with this label, and noticing that the way that I was giving myself to that work was, was playing a part in how shitty I felt in the world was really scary because it, it, it confronted me with this idea of, well, if there's not a way for me to make a change for this to feel better, who does that mean I am? If I'm not running this label and doing this work, 
and achieving this success? Who am I in the world? That was the stuff actually that was really bringing out a lot of the panic attacks in me. So anyways, back to this time when I started practicing meditation, what I noticed was before I'd walk into the office, I would feel more space. There was a sense of spaciousness that I was able to identify. Um, and, and as opposed to I'm starting my day and I'm in reaction mode to everything. The emails are making me feel all shitty in my stomach. I'm getting in arguments with people in the music biz and whatever I was going through. So what I started to notice first and foremost was, was this spaciousness, was an ability to be thoughtfully responsive to things that once I just reacted stressfully to. So I was like, ooh, this is, this is interesting. This is, I feel like I have um, more, more of a rootedness and, and more of a sense of control around how I can show up to these things. And the things that were once really creating stressful reactions in me were starting to feel a lot more manageable. That was really helpful. And then I, I actually, after a few months of practicing this technique, I learned Vedic meditation. And I started practicing a mantra-based meditation. It's really similar to TM. And then that became the thing that I really took seriously. And I started doing it 20 minutes twice a day. That's been what I've been practicing for the past 10 years. And I teach something really similar to that technique called One Giant Mind. And once I started practicing that and, and I was moving into 20 minutes once or twice a day, I started to notice really big shifts. And it started with me with experiencing a lot less anxiety. Not like it's a silver bullet, that stuff's gone, but a lot less of it. Less anxiety, way less stress reactions. Some of the biggest changes that I noticed early on from meditating regularly, having that quiet space, bringing that daily rest to my body, was that my immune system strengthened. I stopped getting sick as much. I started sleeping better. I felt way more connected to who I was. And then I was way more confident in work. I was way more confident when I was dating, when I was socializing, when I was being sexual. It was really, it was really powerful to have these, these shifts. It was like there was this gunk, this sort of block that I was experiencing by sitting in the red zone of toxic stress. And once I had this practice, that stuff started to clear out. And I started to feel a lot more clear about who I was, how I wanted to give myself to the relationships, to the work, to the things I cared about in the world. And it was pretty powerful. I always admired your ability to gather community. I remember when we met I, and you know, you had, you know, this really great group of people in New York city, this diverse, like sort of awesome, you know, adventurous crew that you and, you know, a group of your friends would often program adventures for care to elaborate. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. It was when I was still running my record label and I was just starting to yearn for something else, but I was still very much full-time running my biz. Um, we had had a tech fund. We were investing in startups in the music space. Like there was a lot of exciting stuff happening on, on the work side. This is several years after the panic and learning to meditate and all this stuff. But I was yearning for more. And I started doing these experiments on the side where um, I could gather people. And it really came from a sense of feeling lonely in New York and just really wanting to have fun with people in ways that I, fi I was finding hard hard for that to happen in, in the life I was living in New York. And I love adventures and I love riding bikes. And I invited, I think I'd emailed 20 friends to go on a bike ride. It's pretty much like, if you have a bike, meet me at this spot, we'll go on an adventure. And I would, didn't tell anyone where we were going. And we did this ride. 18 people showed up. We went to Coney Island. We went on a cyclone roller coaster. And on our ride back to the base of the Williamsburg bridge, which is where we started, 
uh, maybe six hours had passed in this adventure of going to the beach and going on roller coasters and riding bikes. And as we were riding back to the starting point, we noticed that there was this almost like feeling of summer camp. Like, like we had, we had been through this adventure. There was a sense of shared accomplishment. A lot of the people on the ride had actually not met before. And probably half of those people I knew from summit, which was, you know, one of many incredible ways that summit has changed my life and influenced my work. (laughs) But on our ride back, we realized that we had something special that we'd be a bike club and that we'd all tell our friends and that every other week we'd go for a bike ride and everyone would be welcome and be free. And we'd take over the streets. And by the end of that summer, we had, you know, several hundred people showing up on these rides. We'd take off, take over like five or six city blocks. And what was so great about it was that people were coming together, not knowing who was going to be there, not knowing where they were going to go. We always kept the destinations a surprise and people would show up nervous. And I learned early on how powerful it can be to invite people into a space where they're out of their comfort zone. Um, in this case, I don't know how long the ride's going to be. I don't know who's going to be there. I could just be sleeping in, hungover on my Saturday at 1 p.m., which is always the time we would ride. But people decided to show up and, and take a little leap of faith. And what I saw was that when people showed up kind of vulnerably in that way, they were a lot more willing to connect with each other and to connect with strangers. So we'd be on these rides in this big mass, and we would ride slow. We'd bring big speakers. Everyone's on cruiser bikes. And people would ride up to someone that I hadn't talked to before and start a, a conversation. And people were making friends in a way that they weren't used to. It was different than socializing at a club or in a bar, you know, at a concert where people don't usually talk to each other. And what we saw was that friendships were born. People were meeting on these rides and starting businesses, falling in love. Multiple people that got engaged and are now married from meeting on these rides. And what it was was a space for a modern community. It was, a, it was a space for people to connect and be seen, supported, and have a sense of shared accomplishment. There was a shared purpose behind gathering, and everyone had to contribute to the experience because we relied on each other, and we still do when we do these rides. We rely on each other to get from point A to point B because when we make a left turn and hundreds of people are trying to make that left turn, the, the, the group gets split up. So someone has to stay back and tell everyone where to turn. And then someone ahead of the group has to tell everyone where to go from there. So there's really this, this community spirit, this, this contribution spirit to it. And it really jazzed me up. Doing that work and leading those experiences and seeing what it did for people really lit something up in me that I, I found that I wasn't experiencing in the music industry. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When was the first time that you did something that was like wellness related as a gathering? I mean, like it sounded like you broke into meditation. I imagine you were hitting like, you know, the East village bathhouse and getting a steam or sauna in every once in a while, you know, typically what happens with like mindfulness is there's like a gateway drug, right? And then you you end up, you know, getting involved in all these different vectors of self-care, you know, and then you, you, when did you shift your community spirit and you're like your organizing body, not to parties, not to, you know, musical performances, then the bike rides. And now, now, now mindfulness, what was the first one? Well, the transition to that was interesting. It was, it was having space at music festivals, right? Cause I was still running my label where I would meditate with managers and artists, um, before they'd go on stage while other you know, while loud performances were happening around us, you know, we'd be at Coachella backstage meditating while there was all this commotion and all this VIP energy. (laughs) And what I remember seeing was that my peers in the music industry were really interested in this stuff. And I, and what I realized was that a lot of people in the music industry were also feeling stressed and experiencing a lot of the mental health shit that I'd been going through. So there was a hunger to have space and community within the music space to be able to share in quiet in the face of so much, literally so much noise and music and sound and also space to talk about the real shit that people were going through behind the scenes in the industry. So we would have these little moments of community uh, uh, within the music industry at festivals. And I really, it, 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 it lit something up in me in the same way that I felt on these cyclone rides. I loved being an organizer of these moments where people can go deeper with each other, 
with themselves and through conversations where they felt human. And what I realized was that I wanted to leave the music industry and give myself to work where I could really focus on creating these experiences, deeper connection with the self, deeper connection with other people, and providing people with community and tools to live the lives they want to live. And I didn't know what it looked like, but I got a taste of it from the bike club. I got a taste of it from organizing these experiences with people in the music industry backstage. So I, in my free time at this point, just about to turn 30, just left my record label, had no idea what I wanted to do, started organizing group meditations for people that were going through it, but felt like they maybe didn't fit into the usual wellness scene. So we got together at my buddy UV Alpert's loft in Soho. I know your your buddy's UV also. Got together at UV's loft. And I invited, same way that the Cyclone started, you know, I think it was 23 people at the first meetup. And it was people that were active in the music industry, fashion space, tech world, a lot of people I knew from Summit, from the places I was partying at night in New York City. We had never come together in in a vulnerable setting. You know, it was always industry, networking, concerts, or partying. So here we were in a buddy's loft. and. It, it was a very, you know, influential, active group of people, a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, self-starter types. And there was something so vulnerable and almost awkward about sitting silently together. And I remember at that first one, we went into meditation and I wasn't teaching or guiding meditations then. It was just, hey, if you practice meditation or you're interested, come be a part of this thing. We closed our eyes. And after we shared 20 minutes in quiet together, which none of us had done together before, we started talking about what was really going on behind the scenes. And I opened up about some of the self-doubt I was experiencing about not knowing what was next in my career, having just left the record industry, dealing with some of the stuff you and I talked about earlier on this podcast in regards to identity. You know, I, I was about to turn 30 and had so deeply identified with being this music record label guy. And now I left and didn't know what was next. And I was going through it. It was it was exciting, but more than anything, it was scary. So I was able to talk about that. And in doing so, I saw other people felt like they could do the same. And something really special happened at this, this first meetup where we were able to slow down and be quiet together and then open up and honestly communicate about the real things that were going on in our lives behind the social media, behind the press announcements and you know funding announcements. And something felt really right. It was in that moment where I realized this is, this is, this is going to be a part of my next chapter. You know, it's, it's such an innocuous start, frankly, like it's, you know, 20 people on a bike ride, 20 people in a, in a friend's living room. And, you know, that can end up leading to the scale that you've now taken big quiet, where you've sort of like mainstreamed, you know, meditation among an influential set of our generation, at least in the United States but just with the knowledge that you need it. And so you imagine other people need it. Um, and then it scaled to such a, you know, really remarkable place. I, I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, like take us, take us a little bit along that journey. I wonder what resonates in, you know, your current world that stayed the same from sort of the entertainment world and the music world, Like, right? What are the sort of universal pieces and then what's changed? Like what's, you know, totally different in the way that you think about your audience today. Of the things that you just mentioned, because so much of that connects and so much I appreciate you seeing and highlighting, 
I think such a big a big piece of how it's been able to grow and grow so fast has been through a commitment that I made from that very first meetup, which was that I wanted to create a community and what would eventually become a business and a brand around um, embracing wellness and well-being at the level at which that at the level at which I've always done myself and and that has always felt authentic to me. And it doesn't mean that people who live a more wellness-centric lifestyle is inauthentic, right? I, I can totally respect the different ways that people identify with this stuff. For me, from the very start, it was always, I love rap music. I eat cheeseburgers. Um, I drink tequila sometimes too much of it. You know, like I do party sometimes. And I also meditate. I also like having space where I can talk about my feelings, I like taking care of myself. I like finding balance, right? I, I like nature. I've, I've always loved this, this blend of what it means to be a modern young person, what it means to be a person, period, and also what it means to take care of ourselves. And, and I never really felt like meditation needed to define my lifestyle or that meditation needed to define who I was. I just felt like it was part of my lifestyle. And that's really what I wanted to bring to life through Big Quiet gatherings and through the brand that the Big Quiet has become today. And that's what's been true for me and for my whole team. And, and we've, just, we've just honored that. And it's been really interesting to take that approach because it has felt really different to what we often see in the wellness industry. And my belief system is that when it comes to, the, to, to what I see in this, what is now a booming wellness industry. When we first started this stuff, it was just starting to happen, but it's been about five years. And, you know, what I see today is a lot of great stuff, a lot of great offerings and brands, a lot of stuff that is so well-intentioned, but I do see how it often is a, is a turnoff for people. I think that when wellness can feel too perfect, too bright and healthy and athleisure and salads, um, that it can start to feel like there's a loss of reality that can just be challenging for people to, to click with and connect with. And sometimes even, even trite, you know? And I think that what's been really important to me is to really look at how we can create experiences that meet people where they're at, especially young people. I'm really particularly interested in our generation and the future generation beneath ours. And being able to introduce this stuff in a way that feels inclusive and accessible and where we're using language and practices that can welcome people in um, as opposed to making them feel like it's not something for them before they can even, you know, give it a try. And this is why we've, you know, we've been really lucky to have some really special moments. We last year, we did a big quiet at South by Southwest, which for listeners who are not familiar is, is a huge conference of music and technology and film and we got to do a 2,000 person big quiet middle of this this major conference festival in, in Austin, Texas. And, and Miguel, the R&B star, performed at the event. He's a big meditator. So we were able to team up with him. And what was so cool was that probably half, at least half the people that came to this event just came to see Miguel perform. And I would guess probably had not meditated before or weren't very familiar with it. Um, and we wind up doing a 20 minute meditation. I had no idea what was going to happen, right? We're at a festival. There's lots of energy. A lot of people probably aren't interested in meditation. We show up for this thing 
And when we start this event and, and Miguel is on board, he's in the audience meditating. Like he's showing that this is something that he cares about. And it was crazy to witness the 2000 people in the middle of this festival just went totally silent. I watched a lot of people cry too. A lot of people got very emotional during this experience. And then Miguel comes on stage and he performs and he just this beautiful performance. We brought in nine violinists to perform with him. And afterwards on his Instagram, he throws up on his story and in his feed, thanks everybody for meditating with us at the Big Quiet. And he shares a little bit about why meditation is important to him. And now millions of his fans are learning about this thing that is so important, so valuable for people. But oftentimes people aren't going to be able to access it because they think of it as being a certain way. But when someone that they love, someone that's a popular, co- you know, an, an icon like Miguel stands up for it, practices it, is a part of it, presents his craft in a way that's totally unique, blended with meditation, we create an entry point for potentially millions of people. And this is, this is similar to Oprah's approach, right? And I think this is why it was such a good fit for me and, and the Big Quiet to go on tour with Oprah for this wellness tour where she literally, we, we went to nine sold out arenas throughout the US with groups of people as big as 17,000. And it's the same thing. It's how can we democratize these experiences to show people that they're welcome to these, that anyone can do them. And once that's happening at scale, the way it can start to shift the world and sort of shift people's perspectives in regards to how they can contribute meaningfully to the world gets really exciting to me. So anyway, so that's that's sort of part one around this this whole thing is how do we make this stuff authentically accessible to people? And I think this is true for any type of work too, right? And it could be so easy to fit into this box of, well, the way it works in the wellness space is you got to use certain language. There's got to be certain imagery and certain sounds and feelings. And for us, it was, well, what if we do it differently? What, what would that look like? What could that feel like? And I do think that that can be applied to all types of industries. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's counterintuitive to think that by doing less, you're going to get more, you know, the idea that, you know, I'm going to take 40 minutes of my day, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, and I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to sit quietly and do nothing. Mm. And somehow that's going to unlock more value for me in terms of my happiness or my lifetime of enjoyment or, you know, my business or, you know, like, I think that it's one of these things that sounds a little bit impossible if and strange to people for you clearly you you know from from your story you meditated you did some mindfulness work and you immediately not necessarily immediately but you saw these results that you felt and you saw and you tracked do you do you have any advice for us that you know have have gotten into it and and haven't really you know retained a daily practice or a regular practice like what 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 have you seen that works in terms of those that are more resistant to the to the to the little quiet let alone the big quiet. <laughs> well, the, the first thing that I like to remind people of when it comes to this is that there's this misconception that if you're not able to quiet your brain, you're bad at meditation or you're doing it wrong. And what I always remind people of is that having a wandering mind is totally natural. It's how our minds work. We all experience this, especially living in a modern world like we do today. So the first thing I remind people of is that it's okay when your mind wanders. It, it doesn't mean that you're bad at meditation. It means that you're a human being and that acknowledging, accepting that our minds wander is a, a really important part of this practice. It's not the reason to not meditate or it's not the reason to go, you know what? Meditation is not for me. My mind's always wandering. So I, I start by just telling people that that's, that's okay. That's actually a sign that you're, you're human, that, that it's working, your brain's working. That's part one. Then the second part is I, I invite people to, to let go of the expectations that they have around meditation. I think, the, I think the meditation, I think that the media has got it twisted, that meditation needs to be this perfectly calm, zen, you know, stones on the beach at sunset type of environment. And the reality is that when we sit, especially if we sit daily and close our eyes and we sit with ourselves, just like weather, just like the weather that we experience in life, wherever we live, 
the weather's different often. And so are our emotional states. So is the, the way that our brains operate in. And having this idea that, or this expectation that meditation is supposed to always be this perfectly calm, zend out thing, it's a recipe for disaster because this is not how we live our lives and how we work as humans. So I invite people to drop the expectation and to just accept and be with whatever comes. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's really restful and relaxing. Sometimes the brain's just wandering, unstressing. But what the science shows is that as long as we're using a technique, regardless of if our brain's wandering or if we're feeling relaxed or sleepy or whatever the experience is, we're experiencing the benefits of the practice and uh, and just adjusting to that mindset, making it okay to not be quote unquote perfect at meditation is such an important part of getting into it. So I find that speaking about it in this way gives people permission to just have the experience they're going to have. And the third thing that I speak to is having some sort of technique that you're following. If that's an app that's guiding you for five minutes, or if that's sitting down with a teacher, or if it's doing a course online, having some guidance around it's really helpful. Because if we just close our eyes and go, all right, I'm just going to meditate. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to close my eyes. People tend to get really frustrated. The app that I really love to recommend to people is is One Giant Mind. It's the number one giant mind. And it's a free app. And it takes people through a really simple practice through an app so they can eventually meditate on their own. Um, and it's it's incredibly helpful and modern. And, and I, I'd say very easy for people to practice. I find that you know the goal as you scale in anything is to essentially increase speed and capacity while decreasing tension. You know, it's such like a counterintuitive balance and you want to be able to work smarter, not harder at some point. And, you know, I think about how, you know, like the, the evidence basis is just that success leaves clues. It's like, you know, you can't, you sort of have to, it's like caterpillar into butterfly with like dedicating time to self-work in a sense where it's like, you know, you have to first just, you know, give yourself over to, you know, the possibility and do the work and then judge for yourself whether or not, you know, you, you get something out of it. I guess my whole dogma around this is like how to bring it to your daily life. You know, like how do you practice, like, I, you know, getting into a Zen state and getting into a peaceful state is lovely and it's on its own. Uh, I guess for me, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, you know, if I'm Zen in my meditation and I blow somebody up in a meeting two hours later, like how Zen am I really? You know, um, and I find I, it's funny when we, you know, we have a friend named NQ I actually had on the podcast. I remember him talking about like finishing a meditation at the end of like a 90 minute yoga and he's like super zinned out. And then some dude who is like, you know, putting his mat back, like knocked over his water bottle or something when he walked by to put the blocks up on the shelf. And NQ is like ready to kill this dude. <laughs> he's like in his own head just for one second. It's like, you're not actually a killer. You're not actually that, but like we just have this sort of fight or flight reactivity. Well, what I, what I love about that example, I think this is, I think this is a really important reflection for meditation and for the wellness industry at large. And it's that by practicing these things and by committing time and energy and resources to learning stuff like this, if it's meditation, if it's yoga, if it's going on retreats, we are not, becoming perfect humans, right? I think there's this, this misconception that, and I used to deal with this a lot, Jeff. I'll tell you, man, like when I shifted into starting to teach meditation and getting in front of these big groups and guiding meditations for thousands of people, I went through this period where I felt like such a fake, such a phony, because I was still experiencing anxiety at periods in my life. And I still do to this day experience those moments. 
And I'd have these moments where I'd be feeling a lot of anxiety right before going on stage to lead a meditation, especially in the early days. And I'd be like, man, I'm this guy that gets on stage and talks about the benefits of meditation and he guides it with all these people. But then behind the scenes, I'm still experiencing anxiety and I'm still feeling depressed and low sometimes. And there was this, this initial period that I went through where I had to um, realize that by being a teacher or by being a leader or by, by sharing tools like this with the world, it doesn't mean that I am supposed to be or that I need to be some sort of a perfect light. But that what's most important and my belief when it comes to teaching and when it comes to leadership is being human, being honestly human. And that when we're able to really live into the experiences that make us who we are fully, the full color, the full spectrum of that, we're a lot more likely to be able to relate to the other people that we want to help and work with. We become a lot more relatable and accessible through having the same lived experiences. And ultimately, what I believe is the way that we're able to pull the greatest wisdom out of our lives is through experiencing firsthand challenge. So I've grown to learn and see that when I still snap at someone for something like the water bottle spilling over at the yoga class, or if I still experience a lot of anxiety when the next day I'm about to go lead a meditation for thousands of people, that these aren't things to feel shame around. These are things to see as opportunities for strengthening and, and, and for learning and for becoming um, you know, the teacher and leader that I want to be in this world. And I love that example about NQ because this is, I think, a, a great example for all of us and all the things that we do. We're always, in my belief, in process, right? We're always in formation around becoming the people that we're here to be. And there's really something beautiful about acknowledging our imperfection in the process and celebrating those things. And I would love to see more of this celebrated in the wellness industry because I think that there is a tendency to present as perfect and as got it fully figured out always. And while people may be drawn to that, I don't know how sustainable it is because I don't think it's real. I think it's very, I think it's very rare for that to be real for people always. My, my question for you is like, you know, you look at, you know, sort of this practice of naming pretty bad things as pretty good things. So calling like, you know, uh, act that allows more pollutants in the air to be the blue skies act. You know what I mean? You know, shifting global warming to climate change. Like these things were strategic. What are the, what are some of the charged words that you avoid and how do you frame what you do in a way that's more civilized? Meaning like it, it brings more people in versus makes people feel like it's not for them. Well, that's a great question. You know, what, one of the practices that we like to play with and, and explore when it comes to our in-person events, and, and actually just in general when it comes to messaging and branding is, you know, it's, it's really easy when it comes to talking about wellness and meditation to use words that exist beyond um, what people can see and understand in the moment that they're in. So, for example, if I ask people to notice their breath or to notice um, the sensation in their stomach. These are things that people for the most part can relate to and understand because they're right there. Most people know how to feel into a feeling and you know, noticing how their breath feels or noticing what a feeling feels like in their stomach. Um, it keeps it grounded and rooted in something that's tangible for most people to be able to understand. If we were to then talk about, imagine this big, powerful, violet, um, orb of light 
that is, you know, a goddess energy of, you know, something, right? And what we and and this, by the way, can be a, a really beautiful visualization practice that works for some people. But what happens is once we're talking about the violet light and the goddess energy, we're using words and visualizations that exist beyond what we can relate to immediately in this moment. You start to lose people. So whereas maybe 99 of the 100 people in the room understand what it means to notice their breath well then maybe only 25 of the 100 people can connect with this concept of the purple goddess light right um and the the more esoteric we become with our words it doesn't mean that it's less powerful it doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad but the more esoteric we become with our words and with our practices the, the more funneled the experience becomes for the audience right the smaller audience size can connect with it. So what I, what, I, what I like to work towards is creating experiences and practices that are in integrity, that are helpful for people, and also use language that people can relate to so we can keep that funnel as big as possible. And this is like what we did on the Oprah tour. I was really intentional about the language that I would use in my 10-minute talk and then in my 10-minute meditation that I was guiding for these big groups. Because I knew that if I took it too far away from what people could connect to, 15,000 people having a meaningful experience that they could then take back to their lives once they left that arena would get smaller and smaller, the more abstract and the more esoteric I would get with the practice. That's a really interesting example to me because, you know, I, I think you humanized meditation in this like very cool kid way. You know what I mean? Where it was like, you know, you're a hip dude, you're like a former music executive, you ID, you know, some of like the great artists of our generation. Clearly you're talented at this. You know what I mean? Like you, if you, if you were making baby clothes, they'd be vibey, let alone like, you know, your meditation practice and platform. But, you know, with, with the Oprah tour, that's not the audience. Like, you know, this is not your like sort of millennial urban entrepreneurial audience. This is, you know, Oprah's audience. And, and, and did you, did you find that to be starkly different or did you find there to be a lot more overlap than you expected? You know, it's such a good, it's such a good point. Everything that I'm talking about was just as relevant. What I learned, you know, I, the audiences were older and mainly, and mainly female. And what I learned was that it was all the same stuff. Ultimately, when I'm leading a mass meditation on this tour in St. Paul, and there's 15,000 people in the audience, and yes, these people love Oprah, but a lot of them have never tried meditation before. Um, There is an opportunity to bring people into this experience and to bring them a tool that can help change their lives or at least introduce them to ways that they could, you know, transform their lives and ultimately have a more meaningful impact on the world. Um, or there's an opportunity for them to cut out and go, you know what, this meditation thing is not for me. I'm going to take a little break for these 10 minutes. I'm going to think about something else. I'm going to check my phone. To me, that's a missed opportunity. So, so it was the same thing. It was how can I use language that is going to allow, um, you know, a, a 55 woman from the middle of the country to feel comfortable practicing this to be able to keep their mind open and learning something that can greatly impact them and then the world around them and this is what i always go back to too and, and i and i'll be honest with you this wasn't always the case for me the first couple years of this work i cared so much about what we're talking about because i wanted to be liked and i wanted to be seen as this cool relatable uh leader meditation guide person it was very much about me and my perception. It took a couple of years to shift out of that. 
And the shift that it's worked towards what I've been able to remind myself of for the past few years is it's not, it's not about how I'm perceived. It's not about if I'm seen as the cool guy on stage, if people like me or not. Ultimately, if more people connect with what I'm talking about when I'm guiding a practice, the more people are able to bring this tool into their lives and as a result, impact the world around them. That's ultimately what it's about. It's how, how is this work of service to people? And when it's helping people, how are they of, then of service to the world around them? And the more we're able to, to do this in ways that welcomes more people into these experiences, the more change we see in the world. That's my belief system. And that's what I've had to remind myself of and why I do think it's so important. Man, I appreciate that. Well, before we jump, enough about you. Tell us about Oprah. What are some of the leadership characteristics that you saw that you're going to that you're going to take for yourself? Man, I learned so much from being on this tour. I mean, I, I'll start just by saying that WW and the whole team that put this tour on with Oprah um, is is just there there's a there's a level of expertise and sophistication that this whole, I mean, there's like hundreds of people touring on this tour and the way that Oprah and her team and WW treat people and support people really raise people up is unlike anything I've seen. There are a lot of people in the wellness industry that Oprah and WW could have chosen to have done meditations on this tour. Truly people with way bigger social media followings who have published best-selling books time and time again, and that could have been, and I think that's that's true for uh, all the different segments, all the different people that got that got booked into segments on this tour. And what I was so moved by was Oprah and her team's willingness to see future generations, um, future leaders, people who maybe like haven't had their huge break yet, and share the stage with them and give them the opportunity to share their gifts because they believed in us. And I loved that. I was so moved by that. Wow. And then, and 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 when it comes to Oprah herself. Man, I got to tell you, you know, she, she would go out on stage. This is a seven-hour event. And Oprah would go out on stage at 9 a.m. to start the show. And the energy and the presence and just the embodied teacher that she is that was exuding from her from that first moment on stage was as strong at the seven-hour mark. Like this, this woman's capacity to be able to be of service and fully present and energized as a 66-year-old woman, for seven hours, 15,000 people, uh, you know, unwavering, and then do 750 meet and greets after each show and still hold that energy and then give a, you know, and then give a speech at the after party where she's like present and talking to everybody. It's like the level of mastery and being able to hold space and be of service in that, in that form, especially at that age, it just, it was just, I was so, so inspired I totally agree with you. Like when you get exposed to people who've been in the game for like 20 years, yeah, 30 she's 35. Years. In, like yeah. You, you think you're a pro and you've been in the game for like eight or nine years and you're just joking. You're like still on your rookie runs, right? Like we just don't know. She's, you know, like planting a garden and helping, you know, steward, you know, next generation who are values aligned, but it's not for her own personal gain. You know what I mean? Like sounds like she's good either way. And uh, that's awesome, man, that that was your experience. And, and, you know, dude, I just, I want to say, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate what you do in the world. I think that, you know, 
civilizing big ideas, like taking things that are harder to understand and making them translatable to other people is everything. Like it, that's the coolest part. You know, uh, in, I'll leave you with a, a great quote from the sweat summit, the like fifth, you know, 15th annual sweat summit, uh, you know, that my buddy Matt went to and my friend, Matt Wiggins, another mutual friend, he, uh, went to the like, you know, international sauna and bathing conference. And, uh, there was some like Nordic superstar sauna met, uh, you know, like, a uh, uh, impresario. And he said, it's not about who has the nicest sauna on the block. It's about who has the most people in the sauna. And uh, you, my friend, are getting more and more people, you know, that that, you know, are, are influential and generationally like making moves, um, you know, and and clearly now, you know, you know, wider, greater national audience and intergenerational audience into mindfulness, which is such a great gift. And uh, I want to applaud you for it and thank you for it. Oh, my man. Hefe, thank you so much, brother, for saying that. I got to tell you, too, before we jump off, just how much you in your work with Summit and the way that you connect people and get people to really communicate about the ideas that matter, like you do in this podcast, how much your gifts have really shaped my work. And so much of what's allowed me to grow and do this work has come from stuff I've, I've learned from you and from Summit and your teams. So I'm just really grateful to have been on this podcast and honored to have um, you know been on this journey with you. I'm really grateful, bro, seriously. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.